as you open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Let's pray together. Father God, you are above all else. And it's not as if you are some impersonal force. No, you are a personal triune God who desires that these people that you created in your image, that we should worship you and respond to you, to your love and your faithfulness, your justice and mercy, to your creative work, your goodness, and especially to your sacrificial giving of yourself to pay the penalty for our sin and that our Lord Jesus Christ would rise again so that by faith in him we can be granted his righteousness even as he took our sin on himself. Lord, we ask that now as we study your word, you would continue to elevate yourself above all else in our hearts, in our desires, our thoughts, our deeds, our words. Show us more of yourself so that we will sing your praises with everything that we do and everything that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to Acts chapter 6 this morning in our sequential exposition of Luke and Acts. Be encouraged, we're only three years in. That means during this decade, we will likely finish Acts if the Lord tarries. Hey, we get to talk about Stephen some more over the next several weeks. I'm going to let me ask you a question. When you think of the name Stephen from the Bible, what is the first thing that pops into your head? The first thing that pops into your head when you think of Stephen. You've said both of the exact things that I wrote in my notes. Some of you said martyr. Some of you said stoning. The first thing that you think of is that he was the first Christian martyr. Stoned to death for standing up for his faith in Jesus Christ. For simply being a faithful minister and then being faithful to share the message of Jesus Christ. When you think of Jim Elliot and Nate Saint, what do you think of? You think of missionaries who went to what in, in Ecuador who what was popularly known as the Alka people, but they're the Waudani people, and they put Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, and, several, and, and two or three others to death. That's what you remember about them. You remember of Jim Elliott that he wrote in his own diary, in his prayers to the Lord, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You remember Elizabeth Elliott as the wife of Jim Elliott, who recorded some of these things as the woman who continued in ministry to the Waudani that they might that some of them might come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. 
You know the name Gracia Burnham. Some of you have met Gracia Burnham. You know Gracia Burnham because she and her husband, were, her husband Martin, were held captive by terrorists, and then her husband was killed in, in crossfire. And you know Gracia Burnham because she was given a platform for ministry because of her suffering in that way. Our study today will help us perceive how Stephen, the simple servant of Christ's church, becomes a target for those who oppose Christ and why you want to be like Stephen. Sometimes when we dig into God's word, we're faced with things that are hard, hard to wrap our minds around, hard to understand, perhaps even difficulties that we're wrestling with in the text itself to understand them. But then sometimes we're faced that things are things that are harder to apply. This is that latter kind of thing. Today we'll take a look at the first part of, a, uh, of three sections in a row that are about Stephen. We have this section we're looking at today that is, is about the man and his ministry. And then the next section comes, the message that he when Stephen gives a speech before the council, when he speaks up the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he gives, the way that Stephen presents that, so there's the message, and then finally, his martyrdom. Let's read in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, to look at the ministry of this man that sets these things in motion. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenaeans and of the Alexandrians and, the, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly decided, or they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, or looking at him intently, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What does Luke want the reader to take away from what happens with Stephen? By the way, I say it that way because we know that the Holy Spirit is the author of the scriptures. So we can't talk about a text of God's word as if it can mean anything that we want it to mean. No, it means what God intended it to mean. And God does not separate what the Holy Spirit intended from what the, the human author that, that he used intended. So you'll hear me say, what does, what, in the context, what does Luke seem to be getting at? What does Luke want us to understand? Because that's the same thing the Holy Spirit wants us to understand. So we have to understand it in its context here in order to apply it to our context now. So I'll ask again, what does Luke want us to know about the man and the ministry, and soon to come, the message that he preached that led to him witnessing to the ultimate degree to his martyrdom? I'll explain it to you this way. 
Why Stephen matters? Because he was a pivotal man for a pivotal moment. Stephen would have been famous, a famous name in the early church, even as he is this, to this day. So by the time Luke is writing, Stephen would have been a name known. If he was the first Christian martyr, they would have heard of Stephen. So Luke would want to offer an explanation for what happened to Stephen, emphasizing, as you can tell, we'll look closely at these things throughout, but you should note the similarity between Stephen and Christ himself, showing us how Stephen was God's man for the moment. Stephen is is pivotal then, first of all, in the sense that he demonstrates progression and succession of spirit-empowered ministry of the followers of Jesus, a succession that leads even to us. As the apostles were in the line of ministry given to them by Jesus, and Stephen in the line of ministry succession from the apostles, so we too are in the line of succession of Stephen, becoming followers of Jesus and ministers in his movement. This section of Acts is not entitled, The Church Suffers a Setback. No, the context in which we find this pivotal moment in Acts, a more appropriate title for this section might be Acts 6, 8 through 931. A more appropriate title might be, Persecution Spreads the Gospel Witness Beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And it begins with Stephen. Stephen's martyrdom was the catalyst. To be clear then, becoming like Stephen, us becoming like Stephen, is to become like Jesus. So Luke offers Stephen as an example to follow in faithful ministry, in bold proclamation, and a calm trust in God's care. For the rest of our time this morning, in the word this morning then, I want us to consider how Stephen, the the server of charity become Stephen the martyr, and how we might aim to be like him. First of all, Stephen becomes Stephen because he's a surrendered, spirit-empowered servant of Christ. When we first read these transitional verses, especially verse 8, we probably think to ourselves, so now Stephen is performing miracles and preaching? Wait! Isn't he one of the guys that the church just picked to serve in the ministry of distributing charity to the widows? All of a sudden, Stephen is performing miracles and preaching? How did we get here? As we said, not only is Stephen proof that God will use others in ministry besides the apostles, but this kind of ministry is an answer to the prayer of believers. If you have your Bible, Please turn with me just back a couple of chapters to Acts 4, verses 29 and 30. Listen to what they prayed for after after a couple of the apostles were threatened. And now, Lord, as they're praying, now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And secondly, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Stephen is an answer to those prayers.
And if we're attentive to the context, we ought to see that this ministry grows naturally or supernaturally, as it were, out of Stephen simply being surrendered to Christ by faith and empowered by the Spirit to serve. Stephen is, here, here are the list of things, I had to shorten that subtitle, but here are the list of things I want you to notice in, in this context. Stephen is surrendered to Christ, Stephen is walking in the Spirit, Stephen is cooperating in a healthy Christian community, Stephen is being faithful in the little things, and Stephen is seizing opportunities. Surrendered to Christ by faith. Look at the description of Stephen in chapter 6, verse 5. As the men are being listed who were chosen, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Stephen is a man who surrendered himself, who submitted himself to God through faith in Christ alone. And then Stephen is a man who continues to live by that same faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. The righteous shall live by faith. Stephen is surrendered to Christ. We must be aiming to we must be, first of all, in Christ, and we must be aiming to glorify Christ. In chapter 8, we'll see in Philip's ministry that there's a guy named Simon the Magician who is presented with the gospel, and he's excited to, to become a part of it. But then what he really wants is the power that some of these guys are having in ministry. And so we have to ask ourselves, we, we're not even 100% sure, but we ask ourselves, is, did Simon even become a true believer? Or was his faith really just about hoping for this power? And is Simon about glorifying himself or about glorifying Christ? See, Simon is problematic. But not so with Stephen. Stephen is a man of faith in Christ, surrendered to Christ a man who aims to glorify Christ. Have you surrendered yourself to Jesus Christ? Who is your master? What do you live for? Who has control over what you do? Are you surrendered to Christ? Stephen is walking in the Spirit, the same place just above in in verse 8, we see where does this power and this, first of all, so first of all, it says that he was a man of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, it says that he's a man full of grace and power. And then in verse 10, it says that they couldn't withstand his wisdom. Where is all of this power and wisdom coming from? Stephen's walking in the Spirit. This is Spirit-empowered ministry. All true Christian ministry is spirit-empowered. If whatever we're doing isn't by the grace and power of God, it isn't Christian ministry. It's something else altogether. All Christian ministry is spirit-empowered. And if what we're doing isn't by the grace and power of God, it isn't Christian ministry. It's something else altogether. Stephen is surrendered to Christ. Stephen is a spirit-empowered servant. Stephen is cooperating in a healthy Christian community. You'll recall in this context that Stephen was chosen as one of the seven because of godly character. 
recognized by the whole community in verse 3. He was chosen to serve charity to the widows, and he was doing so willingly and effectively. The church choosing these seven to help with serving then sets in motion further ministry beyond the initial reason that they were selected. Preservation of unity through fairness to the Hellenistic Jews, to the Hellenistic widows within the community then also leads to further gospel witness to the Hellenists. And I'll explain that more in just a minute. For Luke, Stephen is the embodiment of this important transition in the life and ministry of the church. And he embodies all the qualities of a faithful servant of Christ coming out of a healthy community. And then being faithful in the little things is what afforded this ministry among fellow Hellenistic Jews. Being faithful in the little things created opportunity, and he seized those opportunities as well. Imagine the situation and the progression that takes place here. First of all, this situation is that they have separate synagogues. We talked about this a little bit last week, but there are separate synagogues for the Hellenist Jews because they were those who spoke Greek, and they likely, in their uh, worship services at these Hellenistic synagogues, they would have used the Greek Septuagint, which is a, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, scriptures, and it has been around for a couple of centuries by this time, and so they're using that in their worship services. In fact, much of what is quoted for our purposes in the New Testament comes from the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And so Stephen would have been a Hellenistic Jew who speaks and teaches himself from the Septuagint. And you'll notice in his message, we'll hear quotations, things that he says that come from the Greek Septuagint. So they have, it's likely then this very situation which creates the need for the apostles to have some godly men of character who themselves or were likely Hellenists. Remember we said last week the seven who were chosen all had Greek names? So they helped to serve charity to the widows so that the Hellenistic widows were no longer overlooked. And then you can imagine a natural progression of Stephen's ministry, serving the widows, possibly even using the synagogue or synagogues, more on that in a moment, possibly using synagogues as a center for their distribution. He might have said, okay, widows, you come to the synagogue that is near where you live, and we will distribute what is needed. I could picture that happening. Because the synagogue in Jewish life was more than simply a center for worship, although, of course, it was that, a place of, of public reading of Scripture and of prayer and of teaching. But it was also the, the center of civil life for them. Differences and disputes were adjudicated in the synagogue through these religious leaders. It was, the, it was just the center of social life for them. So as Stephen and the others are distributing to the widows, he has opportunities to speak about the significance of the fact of what Jesus had, has done, why Jesus had come that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. So as Stephen is speaking these things, you can imagine this natural progression. He's telling some, and more people are listening, and they begin asking questions, and Stephen has a broader and broader influence until it may very well be the case that Stephen is preaching publicly just like Peter and John 
and the other apostles. And then those specifically mentioned here that in this situation that that begin to dispute with Stephen, the first description is those is freedmen. These people were descended from Jews who had been captured and taken to Rome by General Pompey. And this was BC, right? So before the time of Christ. But these had been captured by Rome, taken into uh, some of them to be slaves in Rome. But the Romans discovered that the Jews didn't make great slaves because they observed their Christian or their, their Jew, even their Jewish faith so closely that it was frustrating. <laughs> it was frustrating to them because they were uh, carefully attentive to what God expected of them. And so they ended up releasing the majority of them. And now not all of them returned to Jerusalem, but a great number of them returned to Jerusalem. So these are the, the freedmen. And then the way the Greek syntax is structured in this verse with this list of the freedmen, Cyrenaeans, Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia. The Greek syntax uses a lot of the word and to separate these. So it's actually really difficult for us to tell how many synagogues are being described here. Is it one synagogue of the so-called freedmen? That's the term. And yet they're not only freedmen, they're just Hellenists in general. And they're from all these four different places as an example. Or are there they're the freedmen, and then they're from two groups of synagogues. There are those from northern Africa, then there are those from, those from uh, Asia Minor, or so that would be two, or are there three synagogues? The freedmen, then those two groups. Are there four synagogues? <laughs> freedmen, one, two, three, four, or are there five synagogues? You get my point. We don't know for sure. The, the, the real situation is, though, but because they're the Hellenistic Jews, they actually kind of band together, almost like this plural group synagogue to deal with Stephen. So my preferred view is that there are at least a couple of synagogues in view here. And I think that because there's both evidence from extra-biblical historians as well as archaeology that there there were multiple Hellenistic synagogues in Jerusalem, even as there were more than one Jewish synagogue. Those who are Greek, remember we said last week, those who, whose primary language was Aramaic, and then they held services probably in Hebrew. And so there would have been multiple synagogues for both. But either way, these are the, these are the people who rise up against Stephen. Now, briefly, just to get your bearings with the places that are mentioned here, let me show you a couple of maps. I don't have a laser pointer, so I'll just have to try to describe for you. This is, uh, this is sort of the zoomed out view, just so you can get your place in the next map. This is the, the whole Roman Empire. It's massive. So way over on the east is where this little section is that where things are happening right now in Judea, okay? And that what was the land of Canaan became the land of Israel, now is the region of Judea. And then this second map zooms into that eastern side, okay? And then you have, look under the Mediterranean Sea there, you'll see Cyrene, northern Africa. You'll see Egypt to the east, and that's Alexandria. So there we have Cyrenaeans and Alexandrians. Now go up north from Egypt on top of Cyprus, and you'll see Cilicia. That's a a region. Now, 
Do you know what Cilicia is famous for in our context in Luke? Going to be famous for the capital there is Tarsus. And who's from Tarsus? Saul of Tarsus or Paul, okay? Now go a little bit to the west and you'll find a section. By the, by the way, that whole section there is modern-day Turkey, and it was called Asia Minor. But there was an actual province called Asia. So over there is Asia. So we have people from all of these places is what's being discussed. Now, back to the text here. While doing charity work with the Hellenist widows, as we said, Stephen has opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus, which clearly he does. In fact, it's the gospel message that creates the stir. Do you notice it isn't, it isn't the healing and the, the miracles performed, the casting out of demons and such, that isn't what causes a debate. The same was true with Jesus. They couldn't argue with the miracles. Like they happened, and it, clearly it happened, but they would, they would complain about him doing it on the Sabbath. And Jesus would say things like, is it wrong to do good to someone on the Sabbath? Who among you won't go rescue a sheep on the Sabbath? Who among you won't care for your sick on the Sabbath? So it's not Stephen performing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit that's the problem. It's the message that is, generates conflict. The effective ministry does cause like a stir, but not, not, much, not as much the healing as the preaching. It's evidently what Stephen is teaching that causes others to want to debate him and then oppose him. So verses 8 to 10 in the context show us that Stephen is a model servant of Jesus Christ. He's fully surrendered He's fully surrendered his life to Christ. He clearly walked in the spirit instead of in the flesh. Stephen cooperated as a member of a healthy community, and he continued to be faithful in the little things while seizing additional opportunities to serve God and advance the gospel. So too, Stephen is a model for responding to attacks against the message and the messenger. Stephen becomes Stephen because he defends the message of fulfillment and salvation in Jesus Christ. Spirit-filled ministry draws attention to the message more than the messenger. But when opponents fail at attacking the message of the gospel, they must resort to attacking the messengers of the gospel. And now think about the situation in which you live right now, and there is always opposition to the gospel, and it is indeed the case that Satan wants to use whatever means he has, so he will attack the message try to make it sound foolish and unreasonable. They will try to gut the gospel by removing all that is miraculous. They will try to gut the gospel by saying, if we can only prove that Jesus is not raised from the dead, then the gospel has nothing else to stand on. But it is also the case that they will attack the messengers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in verse 9, the second half of 9 and verse 10, we see that Stephen's ministry stirs debate. They rose up and disputed with Stephen. That means they debated with him, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Debating Stephen doesn't go in their favor. 
Spiritual wisdom is imparted to those who are spiritual, who are made alive by God. We learn it from God, and we lean into it by knowing more of God, and, and by praying for him to give us skill to implement his will. God, give us knowledge, give us wisdom that is spiritual wisdom, not earthly wisdom. God, help us to implement your truth with skill. God, guide our lips and guide our lives. And Stephen's debate with them is also marked by power and authority given in the spirit that his detractors do not have. And that too is an answer to prayer. Not only the command of Jesus Christ, but also the prayer of Jesus Christ. Do you remember John 17? Christ himself prays for his people, that they will not be of the world, but they will be in the world, and that we will be effective witnesses. Stephen has a spirit that his detractors do not have. So as we said, they resort to attacking the messenger these devout Hellenistic Jews, Stephen stirred up debate, they stir up trouble for Stephen, verses 11 to 14. What approach do they use to try to take Stephen down? They have him accused of blasphemy that will get him brought before the Sanhedrin. Verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. Remember, the elders are the elders of the people, those who um, are important in the social life. The scribes are those who are experts in the law. A lot of them were Pharisees. And they came upon him then, and they seized him and brought him before the council, that is the Sanhedrin, the primary ruling body in all of Judaism. So they make this trouble for Stephen. And what kind of accusations are they leveling against him? Well, I want you to notice Verse 11 is parallel to verse 13 is parallel to verse 14, okay? So if you're taking notes, you can mark this down the same way. There are two things mentioned and two things mentioned and two things mentioned, okay? And they build upon it themselves. Now, verse 11 says, they secretly instigated men. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. There are two categories, against Moses and against God. Verse 13, same two categories. They set up false witnesses and said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. This holy place equals blasphemy against God, the temple, and against the law equals what we're saying about this blasphemy against Moses. Verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and that's Category one, okay, blasphemy to God equals blasphemy to the temple equals Jesus will destroy this place. And then the other one, change the customs that Moses delivered to us, the law. So what are they accusing him of, of saying? They're accusing him of saying that there's no, that, that what Stephen is teaching in Jesus Christ destroys our temple system and destroys the law. But Luke also tells us that these are false accusations. So how might they be twisting what Stephen is actually teaching? Because what did Jesus teach about the temple? It is probably true that Stephen likely said something close to the way that they are being deceitful about the temple. What did Jesus say? I will destroy this temple 
and rebuild it again in three days. What was he talking about? Himself, his body. And then what would Stephen say about that though? That God does not dwell in a place built by human hands? Jesus is the perfect representation of that temple. Jesus is our access to God. And now the people who are indwelled by the spirit of God, we are God's temple. And they're going, whoa, this is blasphemy. Or what would Stephen have been teaching? So that, that's the, the part that I'm calling, that's the salvation message, right? What would, Jesus, what would Stephen have been teaching about Jesus being the, the fulfillment of the Mosaic law? Jesus had told his apostles, if you look at the law and the prophets, you will see me. Let me show you me in the law. I am the fulfillment of that law. God gave the law to his people so that they could understand how to, how to draw near to God in relationship to him. Here's a better way to live consistently with my character. But they couldn't do it, right? And so the New Testament teaches us, Galatians tells us that, that the law is our, our tutor to show us Jesus. And so Jesus fulfilled the law. He was the perfect Adam, the perfect Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of those things. And so Stephen might have been teaching such and saying that the only way for you to even keep the law is to do so through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You will never keep the law. And, and, and as the New Testament teaches us, if you fail at one point of the law, what? You fail at all of it. You're guilty of all of it. So you can see how they might have twisted Stephen's words. But not too far from the kinds of things that Stephen may have actually been saying. He was preaching that Jesus is fulfillment and salvation. Here we have another way in which Stephen's experience epitomizes what is to be expected. There will be spiritual opposition to God's spirit-empowered servants. Stephen was so becoming, and yet he became a chief target for those who opposed the church. Wait, Stephen was so becoming as a follower of Jesus, which is why he became a chief target for satanic opposition. But Satan hasn't learned his lesson, and neither have those who oppose God's people. Trying to kill Jesus literally fulfilled the plan of God. Trying to silence the church by intimidating or even killing Jesus' servants only serves to give the gospel a megaphone and to magnify it with clarity. In this way, trouble for Stephen doesn't shake Stephen. Stephen becomes Stephen because attacks against the messenger cannot shake his calm assurance in God. Verse 15. In fact, we'll see that all this trouble for Stephen actually stirs gospel opportunity. Why do we say, by the way, as we're speaking of verse 15, why do we say that Stephen, why do I say that Stephen had calm assurance? Look at Luke's description of him in verse 15. In fact, it strikes me nearly as odd. They're looking at him intently, and everybody in the council can see that his face was like the face of an angel. <laughs> It makes me wonder if this is where we get our conversation about, oh, yeah, I know, you're such an angel. By the way, we might mean two different things about being like angels, right? 
there are not only those who are still following God, but there are fallen angels as well. But that's not what it means here. I am convinced that it is speaking of Stephen's calm assurance in God. Because Stephen is near to God, Stephen is authorized by God, and he is innocent before God. Perhaps we're meant to remember, speaking of Stephen's nearness to God, maybe we're supposed to remember Moses' face literally glowing when he had been near the presence of God to receive the law. And Moses and the prophets were authorized by God to speak his truth. Much more, Jesus and his apostles after him, and now Stephen, given authority from God himself to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Jesus had told them in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. And then he tells them in Acts 1.8, and you will receive power from the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses, authorized by God. Stephen is near to God. Stephen is authorized by God, and surely we are meant to see from Luke the similarity to Jesus in the experience of Stephen, so this likely indicates his innocence. Luke mentions that these are false accusations, even as exactly what took place with Jesus. Stephen epitomizes a calm, Christ-like trust in God's care, a calm, Christ-like trust in God's providential working to do good and to advance the gospel. Stephen knows that opposition to the gospel doesn't slow it down, it speeds it up. So Stephen matters because he exemplifies the extension of ministry beyond the apostles, because he represents a turning point that led to greater persecution that would result in spreading the gospel beyond Jerusalem, And Stephen is a model of spirit-empowered Christian ministry, being faithful in whatever opportunities God gives, being both bold in witness and depending on God for grace, strength, and wisdom. So how can we become Stephens? As I was thinking about this context of Stephen, and even as I, the way that I began the message this morning... You can't really prepare for becoming a martyr, but we can prepare our hearts each day to abide in Christ. We can prepare our hearts each day to submit to the work of the Spirit. We can be preparing ourselves by asking God to help us follow in Stephen's footsteps as he followed Christ. So three final applications for you this morning from what we've seen. Are we faithfully serving God in the little things? If we will humbly serve God where we are, in whatever way he sees fit, being active in various ministry opportunities, there's no telling how God might choose to glorify himself through our ministry. And the most important factor for effectiveness in ministry is walking in the Spirit, not specialization or platform. Grace, power, and wisdom all come from where? From the Spirit. So Spirit-empowered ministry is primary. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that ignorance is a virtue. (laughs) 
So training to grow in skill isn't unimportant. But in our culture, we put far too much weight on those things over and above drawing near to God, abiding in Jesus. That is primary. Are we faithfully serving God in the little things? And secondly, do you accept and even embrace the inevitability of opposition to Christ in you? When the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of God's word intersects with, intersects with and conflicts with the lifestyle that people hold dear and sacred, to them it's offensive and annoying. For the religious, it contradicts what they hold sacred. To the secular, it contradicts their licentiousness, their so-called freedom. They don't know true freedom, but they think it's a threat to their freedom. There's quite literally no way around this offense. We proclaim the fullness of the gospel of God as he presents himself and his salvation through Jesus. And then we have to leave both the transformation in people's lives and the consequences into his sovereign, faithful, loving care. Finally, do we have the calm assurance of trusting God because we're near to him? Do we have courage because God has authorized his people? Do we have confidence because we know we have been given the spirit of grace and power? And do we face suffering and trial like our Savior so that we have a clear conscience as well as a view of God who is working for good? Will you allow your suffering to be a sweet aroma to God? Will you allow your suffering to be a grace that uplifts fellow believers and testifies to the sacrificial love of Jesus? In your present suffering, you cannot measure the impact that your dependence on God and your perseverance in faith and hope are having on those around you. Let's pray. Father, we readily admit that no one wishes to suffer greatly for faith. We're not looking for persecution. We're not seeking martyrdom. And yet, God, we certainly do not want to belittle the impact. In fact, to the contrary, the amazing work that you do when people are willing to suffer like the Lord, when we are willing to do whatever it is that you have for us, God. We know that we cannot do this on our own. We must be people who are surrendered to Jesus. We must be people who are walking in the Spirit. We must be people who are functioning in a healthy Christian community. We must be people who are faithful in the little things, and we must be people who are seizing opportunities as you see fit to give them. Help us, God, to draw near to you, to remember that we have been authorized by you, and to remember that you are 
finishing what you started. Give us calm assurance and courage and encouragement. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.